travellers, and welcome to podcast 25 of our series, You Should Have Been There, with me, Mick Webb. And me, Simon Calder. And today, we are going slow. And while time waits for no man, we are going to get a breadth of contributions from all sorts of practitioners of slow travel. Yes, to get some sense of what it is to be a slow traveller and some ideas about where to go. Where do you stand on slow travel, Mick? Well, my first thought is that it's uh, something of a marketing trick. Part of the travel business's relentless search for a new badge, a new brand, the next big thing. But that doesn't mean there there isn't something in it. I mean, my general sort of feeling about uh, slow things is... Um, it's not for me. Uh, I remember the slow bicycle race at uh, school sports day and uh, um, how annoying it was to uh, <laughs> not go anywhere fast and, and indeed to fall off quite painfully. I have found out, though, that um, slow travel is linked to the slow food movement and that both of these possibly have their origins in a book called In Praise of Slow, which was written by a... Uh, Canadian journalist called Carl Honoré in the early 2000s and he equated fast things with busy, controlling, aggressive, hurried, quantity over quality, strict, impatient, analytical, over-analytical, etc, etc. Well, I'm kind of carbon dating it to a little earlier, actually in the uh, late 20th century. I think that the slow movement first of all got going um, as a kind of protest against fast food. And so my first stop when seeking uh, contributions to our uh, voyage of discovery at a reasonable pace uh, was to talk to the food writer Gina Waggett. Because the uh, slow travel movement came out of the slow food movement, for me, um, slow travel is always all about the food. I think you can really access a, a culture through its food and what people are cooking and what the locals eat. Uh, there's no point going to Tokyo for a Big Mac, after all. So this means you should avoid chain hotels, you should always do self-catering, and going to the local supermarket can be an adventure as well. A good tip if you're normally a fast traveller, I would recommend you find out what the national dish is and go find where it's cooked. And if you uh, look, for example, on Wikipedia, it will tell you that the slow movement actually began with a protest against the first uh, McDonald's, I think, in Rome. Um, and it's remarkable how many protests there have been about McDonald's, um, the fast food, of course, as opposed to slow food, which all too often in my book uh, just means incredibly long wait for your pizza. And I'm not seeing any shortage of customers at, uh, at McDonald's around the um, uh, great cities of Europe. Well, I think you are an old cynic, but then so am I. I do tend to see this slow movement as being a kind of attempt to capture lots of travel slogans from the recent years and put them in the same net. Things like wellness, local, sustainable, back to nature, back to basics. And I even found a, an, an example of an island off the uh, uh, Australian coast of Brisbane, to be specific, which is trying to market itself as Slow Island. Um, <laughs> would you believe? <laughs> there was one thing that I found in, in some travel brochures and uh, marketing and material, which did strike a chord with me, which was, do you want to come back 
from your holiday feeling relaxed or um, actually feeling that you need another holiday to get over it. And that is something that does quite often happen. Um, Hang on. Uh, It all depends what you want from a holiday. So if you want just idleness or some people would characterise it as relaxation, then you certainly shouldn't need another holiday. But if you want immersion in a place, which I'm sure that many advocates of uh, slow travel would want, um, then that suggests that you've actually got to be kind of quite busy and engaged with what's going on. So uh, I'm not sure that coming back feeling uh, exhausted is necessarily a bad sign or a sign of a bad holiday. I think it's simply um, the sort of holiday you've chosen to have. OK, well, let's get on to um, ways of actually getting to destinations, travelling, and um, the opposition between trains and buses and planes. Now, it seems to me that if we're talking slow travel, there is only one winner there. And um, now we're going to hear from uh, traveller Alec Webb uh, and first um, Anna Hughes, who is the director of Flight Free UK. Slow travel is travel that's good for the soul. It can mean walking, cycling, going by ferry or train, basically anything except for a flight. It's about the journey having as much meaning as your destination. So I went to Copenhagen recently and going over land meant that I felt really connected with the landscapes and the people along the way, which are among the reasons we travel in the first place. So it's much more enriching for the traveller and really importantly, from a climate point of view, the emissions are so much lower. I know lots of frequent flyers who discover train travel and love it. Travel time can be work time because you don't spend so long hanging around in a queue. And if you're travelling for leisure, it's so much more comfy and relaxing. So I would say to those who've never tried slow travel, just give it a go and you might discover you're hooked. I can understand why uh, the Italians have felt the need to intervene uh, with fast food to... uh, include a slow option but I think with traveling I feel like it's inherently pretty slow anyway and that's kind of part of the fun of it the bus from Medellin to Bogota that we got a couple of years ago just before Christmas took 12-13 hours to go 250 miles so about 20 miles an hour and that was great because it gave you all the time to work out what you're doing next and then a little while ago we went on holiday to Spain and got the train from Barcelona to San Sebastian and that took sort of six hours and that was perfect time to see the world go by and read a book so I suppose if you've got not a lot of money and you want to get off the beaten track or or go somewhere exciting it's gonna probably be slow. Now I should say that Alec Um, as he is uh, one of my sons, so I know, actually flew to both uh, Colombia, where he went on his uh, long bus trip, and to Spain. And so I wonder whether that, um, well, certainly according to Anna's, uh, Anna Hughes's definition, disqualifies him as a slow traveller. Yes, but I hope he had a window seat. And look, I am I, I'm great. I greatly enjoy rail travel. Um, let's not at this stage get into the whole climate change argument over aviation. We'll leave that for another day. But 
this week I had the immense pleasure of actually flying um, to test out how it was on a triangle trip uh, from Gatwick to Glasgow. Then I went across to Dublin and then I flew back to Bristol. And the greatest joy of that was looking out of the window. Honestly, um, you, you, yeah, it was a little bit grey and dismal in the morning. But by the afternoon, um, flying uh, across the Irish Sea, everything was laid out like a map. You could follow all, all that the entire intricate coastline of Ireland. It was uh, uh, just uh, the kind of privilege that no previous generation has really enjoyed for thirty quid. Um, it, just, just brilliant. Uh, Planes can bring their own aesthetics as well. OK, but is that part of slow travel or is or is this something of an indulgence? I mean, uh, I wonder, I mean, I've had some very pretty plane journeys, which quite frankly have been nicer than um, train journeys, particularly on high speed trains, which are good in that they get you to places quickly and are apparently better for the climate. But if you're going along on a TGV French train at 300 kilometres an hour, you really don't see anything at all. Um, and I must say, I've seen much more of the French countryside from a flight going down, particularly down the west coast, uh, and that beautiful view of that amazing ribbon of Long Beach um, from uh, south of Bordeaux. Um, but um, I would say that... Um, definitely against planes when we're talking slow travel is what happens before and after the flight i mean it's particularly stressful at a large airport and i imagine is going to be even more stressful when you try not to catch covid spend hours i imagine um uh, but I haven't done it yet, obviously, uh, queuing up for all the things you have to do. I just can't think of anything more horrible, really. Ah, well, right now, um, the most relaxing thing you can do is get a flight because you'll find there's almost nobody on there. Um, you don't wait for security. Security waits for you. Oh, uh, Mr. Webb, um, yeah, fine. We, we will uh, attend to you um, as soon as you're ready. <laughs> And I absolutely agree with you about this kind of blur of countryside that you see in France, which for me isn't very, very fulfilling. So what about slow trains? Well, I've done a bit of work on this because last time I travelled on any foreign train was in Luxembourg. And I was there because they decided to henceforth have free public transport forever, moving people from fast cars to slowish trains and would you believe i was lucky enough to be there with nikki gardner who's co-editor of hidden europe magazine and europe by rail and she has made some astonishing discoveries including she told me about a funny suburban train the sort of thing you find normally rattling around the suburbs the environ of um, of, of berlin or munich yet every night one of these trains goes from the Baltic all the way down through Germany into Austria and ends up in Vienna. It's all to do with the maintenance cycle, but you can buy a ticket for this very long, very slow train. Well, I guess the deal here is that the Deutsche Bahn, the German railways and their Austrian counterpart are keen to get a little bit of revenue uh, on these uh, runs where the trains are taken back to Vienna 
um, to be serviced. And I guess the railways, what they're trying to do is for those people who've got hardy bums and don't mind 14 or 15 hours in a train seat, I guess they're hoping that they can flog a few tickets cheap to that sort of traveller. Would you be tempted at all? Well, I wouldn't mind the first hour or two on a summer's evening as it goes south through the German state of Brandenburg, which is very beautiful. And I wouldn't mind the last hour of the journey on a summer's morning as you cruise down the Danube Valley, past the monastery at Melk, into Vienna. But the whole trip, that wouldn't be one for me, Simon. Well, I like I like that phrase, hardy bum. I'm not sure I'd actually like the journey very much. Uh, it could also, I would have thought, be squeaky bladder time. Um, uh, I kind of like these days to be able to recline a bit um, when I'm uh, travelling overnight. I, I think it's I think it takes us straight back to um, uh, the days of interrail at, at the peak, which was probably, I would say. Um, mid 80s and that's exactly the sort of train that you would invariably end up on because it meant that um, you get eventually to your destination and furthermore you wouldn't have to pay for a night in a hostel so that seemed to work and Mick I've been um, uh, looking at what France is doing this year in 2020 Um, and it's going back to the mid 80s as well the big problem of course for France is that It is the world's leading destination for tourism. Normally 90 million people come in every year. Uh, They're going to be on just a fraction of that. So they're trying to persuade the French to explore their own country rather than travelling abroad, which seems perfectly reasonable. But the tourism minister, Jean-Baptiste Lemoyne, has launched a campaign called This Summer I'm Visiting France. Fair enough. But unbelievably, he has reached back to a 1986 hit from the veteran French popster Didier Barbier-Livien um, called Quitte l'autoroute, which I understand, you'll know better than me, translates as Get Off the Motorway. <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant. It um, it sounds like um, every French entry that I can remember to the Eurovision Song Contest, although weirdly it wasn't, was it? Uh, I don't think. Uh, no, but uh, it could be this year's entry. Um, but what was it saying to you, Mick, in a very, very French sense? Well, I, there were some very good rhymes in it um, and and explaining that if we took to the byways and left the motorway we will be able to see things like uh, uh, les maisons, les saisons, les moissons uh, that's um, of course to you and uh, me houses, seasons and harvests des villages de France and even, this is the best line of all pour voir les lapins, les chemins le bon pain which is um, rabbits <laughs> rabbits and tracks and good bread ah that is so brilliantly french isn't it um uh i mean it's great but i can't help but feel that um if if a lot of um automobilistes uh, actually do leave the motorway and um take the french minister of transport's advice uh travel will be so slow that you won't actually get anywhere at all 
Well, uh, you need to watch out for that. But um, the um, Monsieur Lemoyne says it's time to get back to our good N and D roads to rediscover France's gems. So there we are. Um, in all seriousness, I think they are expecting um, far, far less tourism, both domestic and international. So I don't think you're going to find yourself um, stuck in a, a, a kilometres long jam on some scenic byway. Um but you, I understand, Mick, have been going back even further than 1986 to get some inspiration about slow travel. Yes, the, the desirability of leaving the main roads behind is part of a splendid book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by uh, Robert Persig. Um, 1974... In fact, um, having been, I think, rejected by well over a 100 publishers, went on to be published and to become the best-selling philosophical work ever. Uh, and uh, so here we have, um, uh, I don't know if you've come across it. No. But um, it is a it is an absolutely splendid uh, uh, piece of work. And the basis of the book is uh, a motorcycle journey, which... Robert um, took with his son and a couple of friends uh, across the United States and um, uh, the very last thing they wanted to go on was main roads and he explains why. We want to make good time but for us now this is measured with emphasis on good rather than time and when you make that shift in emphasis the whole approach changes. Twisting hilly roads are long in terms of seconds, but are much more enjoyable on a motorbike when you bank into turns and don't get swung from side to side in any compartment. Roads with little traffic are more enjoyable as well as safer. Roads free of drive-ins and billboards are better. Roads where groves and meadows and orchards and lawns come almost to the shoulder, where kids wave to you when you ride by where people look from their porches to see who it is, where when you stop to ask directions or information, the answer tends to be longer than you want rather than short, where people ask where you're from and how long you've been riding. Well, how lovely that is, although, of course, um, these days of uh, GPS um, navigation, I'm not sure how many times people stop to ask directions or information, although I'm, I generally try to because usually local information is um is the best sort and uh, i've also discovered not everything on the internet is entirely true um but motorbikes are still by their nature fast and many motorcyclists love motorbikes purely because they are so i think cycling is the ultimate form of slow travel it also of course does not um uh, create any uh, uh, carbon dioxide, although I'm sure physiologists would have a word to say about that. And I've been doing quite a lot of cycling to replace what we would, uh, what I would normally do by public transport, which I'm not allowed to catch at the moment. So just in the last couple of days, I've cycled to Gatwick Airport and all the way around it to see the the airport that time forgot. Um, and I've also been across to London City Airport in the um, uh, Docklands area east of the capital. Um, but let's get back to the experts. Um, here's a little more from Gina Waggett. The best slow journey 
or slow travel I ever did was taking a friend's boat up the Intracoastal Waterway, which is a huge canal running up the east coast of the States. With a boat, you're dictated, um, your schedule is dictated by the wind and the waves rather than what you want to do, so you have to slow down. But you don't need anything fancy like a boat. You could do it in a, a canoe or you can do it with a day hire. But the important thing, of course, is that you're forced to take it slow. Oh, well, that's a very, very good kind of slow travel. Um, uh, of course, travel by water. Um, well, for me, it, it, it brings to mind um, turn off your mind, relax and float downstream from uh, the Beatles song. Um, Tomorrow Never Knows. Tomorrow Never Knows. Yeah, Tomorrow Never Knows. Um, and uh, I, I was sort of thinking that, in fact, maybe even slower than um, uh, than canoeing or kayaking or um, narrow boating would be swimming. And uh, you certainly used to. I haven't checked whether they're still um, running them. Be able to do swimming holidays, um, which look particularly attractive in some of the many, many islands off the Croatian coast. And you could actually swim from one to the other in a group and then uh, you'd uh, stay presumably in a campsite or a hotel or something and then swim to the next island the next day the only thing I've got against it is it might actually get quite boring and it might be quite tiring Um, and I'm not sure quite how much you can really see from uh, the sea when you're swimming whereas actually being a little bit higher up and that's going back to cycling again I think might be that that is really the way to um, to actually travel and do it slowly uh, and obey many of the um, tenets and precepts and things that we've been um, hearing about Uh, and uh, like you actually I must say I've been uh, out and about on my bike um, and I've been trying to cycle to all the high points um, within an hour or so's uh, journey of my home Um, and uh, you can get some great views um, uh, out over the uh, from the North Downs and then out towards the South Downs and then having exhausted yourself going up the hill you can then um, coast down it uh, which is absolutely wonderful. Um, I think that there's a book in this Mick and I think it's called The Seven Summits of South London. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Just as the uh, the world has seven summits, the highest mountain in each of the uh, continents, surely you can um, you you can introduce people to something even more um, enthralling. Um, and of course, all the way through the coronavirus pandemic, um, we, we found that that uh, COVID nineteen is the enemy of travel, but maybe it's the friend of slow travel because it has um, obliged you to uh, seek what uh, comforts you can from your from your locality um, and also it's uh, it has given us all time to look up the lyrics of tomorrow never knows and uh, realize that there is a an instruction to listen to the color of your dreams which i'm sure is the sort of thing that slow travelers would um, w- would revel in if i may but slower than slower not probably uh, not probably about the same pace as uh, uh, swimming depending on how you are certainly slower than uh, cycling is walking and 
I have been hearing from my friend Graham Hoyland, who actually has climbed the seven summits, or he's climbed almost all of the seven summits around the world, and um, he hasn't, unlike you, uh, uh, conquered uh, South London's seven summits. Um, but he is a writer, and he has had a fascinating uh, project. Um, walking through spring. What slow travel means to me is being calm and careful and reflective. The best slow journey I can recommend would be to walk with the season of spring. I did this once through England from south to north and spring goes up through the country at about two miles an hour. So you walk along with it. And we would just sit in the verge and look at what was going on uh, and watch for 10 minutes. And after a a while, you'd see a caterpillar crawling up a a stem. You might see a shrew appearing in amongst the roots. A bird will come and sit by your head, cock its head and adjust a feather. And none of those things would we have seen if we had driven past in a car. On the way, we planted an oak tree every mile and at the end of the journey we had 500 oak trees and it was a very satisfying slow journey. Well that is very relaxing just listening to um, Graham talking about that that slow journey through spring. Um, I suppose that the, the walking journeys I've done have always been slightly um, disfigured by the need to get somewhere um, and the um, over-optimistic <laughs> planning that uh, I've always done, um, i.e. Uh, biting off more than I can chew, assuming that I'll get to somewhere uh, in time for a relaxing beer uh, on the terrace of some um, um, mountain <laughs> refuge before um, then sitting down to a whacking great meal and of course needless to say you're always late and particularly if you're somewhere like France where um, latecomers um, are not welcome at the dinner table and in fact if you turn up one minute after 7.30 in um, some um, places you just don't get any food so it's quite uh, it's, it's, well sort of not quite as relaxing as, as, as Graham's. Well, I, I must say, Mick, uh, you and I and many other people have very simply taken a tent. And so therefore, the um, uh, time at which Madame or Le Patron are, uh, is going to close the kitchen is irrelevant because you are um, out in the wilds, which is a good place to be. And would you believe that the Italians have just come up with what they are claiming to be their own Camino de Santiago, the uh, 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 pilgrimage path to uh, uh, Santiago de Compostela in Spain. Um, But this is actually very 21st century, very marketing as well, which um, might might, uh, uh, trigger your your suspicions of of slow travel. Um, It connects all of the... uh, Italy's 25 national parks. It's called the Sentiero Sentiero dei Parchi, 
Um, and uh, they say, yes, largely inspired by the way of St. James. And it takes you through all 25 of those parks from the Alps um, to the islands of Sicily and Sardinia. Um, and it was to Italy that I turned next. Uh, I sent to James Hill, who is a very noted uh, uh, cultural tour guide. Um, I felt that he would have something to say since he lives in Rome and he has done for many decades. Um, so I sent him uh, a, a list of um, a, a list of topics and asked for his responses. What does slow travel mean to him? Why is it superior or inferior? The best slow journey he's had and how to slow down a fast traveller. Um, what does slow travel mean to me? Well, um, I think, to be quite honest with you, you know, the more you look, the more you see. And this might entail uh, going to fewer places, but spending more time in them um, rather than having a couple of days. Um, is it superior or inferior? I, I think it's probably different uh, in that, um, you know, as you get older, I think, you know, you do take things a little slower. Um, but I wouldn't say it's, it's superior or inferior. Um, I mean, we may be compelled uh, to sort of uh, look at travel as being uh, slightly slower anyway, what with higher airfares and what have you. Um, best slow journey I've ever had? Uh, I'm, I must say driving around Lake Como and Lake Lugano over two, three days is, is a particular joy. Um, and I suppose finally, how would I slow down a fast traveller? Um, well, I, I must say, I think I would try and compel he or she to understand that the capacity to be astonished can take time. Uh, and whether you're looking at a view or engaging with, or engaging with someone you've never met before, um, I think the longer you take it in, uh, the more you're going to enjoy it. And I think yeah, the more you will remember it. I am all in favour of intensity. So I'm afraid, having heard from all these great people, I'm still of the mind that the more you can pack in to a short space of time, which after all is all any of us have on this earth, the better. Well, I think uh, along with me, most of our advocates of slow travel would consider you a bit of a lost cause. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, but anyway, look, it's time to think about next week's podcast. And I propose that we uh, tackle a subject which is fairly close to my heart and is certainly becoming quite popular. Uh, and that is camping. Uh, very, very appropriate because um, uh, the very first time that you or I or anybody in the United Kingdom is legally allowed to stay away from home anywhere is by going camping or caravanning or another form of self-contained uh, accommodation in Northern Ireland. So um, I could well find myself uh, waking up in Northern Ireland on the very first day of tourism when it comes back to life um until then from me simon calder and from me mick webb goodbye goodbye 